0: All right, let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 12 through 18 this morning. I know I've met some people out in the lobby before the service. Is your first time here? And I'm sure there's some others that I didn't get the chance to meet. And so we've been walking through this series that we've entitled Anchored: Finding Stability in the Midst of Rough Waters because let's face it, either you are experiencing rough waters right now, you've just come out of some rough waters, and don't mean to be pessimistic this morning, but we're going to experience rough waters in the future. So it's important that we understand how can you and I experience stability when those circumstances, when those storms of life come? And praise God, God's word has the answer. And so we've been walking through the book of Philippians verse by verse, chapter by chapter, really looking at what Paul, who's the author of this letter to the church at Philippi through the Holy Spirit, how he is encouraging them even as he's experiencing difficulty. He's in a Roman prison for the first time. That's where he's writing this letter. So how do you, how do I experience stability when everything else seems to be in chaos? And so God's word is giving us the answers as we walk through this book in Philippians. And so here's the title of the message this morning, and it's actually a question I want to ask you at the same time. Do you work out? I'm not asking you to raise your hand. But do you work out? Have you ever had somebody ask you that? Hey, looking pretty good. You work out? So you're like, I've never had someone ask me that. <laughs> never had somebody ask me that. Maybe you had some, maybe you have had someone ask you that, and here's what I've found that when you get asked that. First of all, you try to act like super humble, right? Because we dealt with humility in Philippians chapter two, so hopefully you're trying to exercise humility, but at the same time, you're actually glad someone noticed, right? And so when you are asked that question, what do you oftentimes do? They're asking, what are you doing? And you're like, well, I'm eating this and I'm not eating this and I'm working out this many times a day. And So you explain to them what you are actually doing. Here's what I've never experienced when I've asked someone, hey man, you're, you're looking a little stronger, like you put on some muscle, you've lost some weight. Nobody said, hey, let me tell you exactly what I did. Like every morning I get into my garage, I pass the weights that are in my garage, I get in the car, I make sure I look at them for a couple of minutes, I get in my car, I pull out of the garage and I wave goodbye to those weights. And then I get to pass by them again, because when I come in from being, from coming to my house from work, I open the garage door, I see those weights again, I look at them for a couple minutes, and I pass right by. And then after I walk into the house, guess what else I do? I walk by a bookcase that has littered with workout DVDs. And I make sure that I look at those every time. I'm so glad that you noticed that I worked out. or being silly, right? Why? Because. Nobody who gets asked, oh man, I see a difference that's going on in you would ever say those things that I just said. Why? Because it's not enough to have the weights. It's not enough to have the workout DVDs. It's not enough to actually know what you're supposed to eat and know how you're supposed to work out. You have to do what? You have to do it. You have to exercise a personal responsibility to say, I am actually going to apply what I know to be true. True. And we're coming to a passage of Scripture in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, where Paul is going to make this statement, work out your salvation. Work out your salvation. Now, when I say that phrase, some of you are saying, wait a minute, like, You're drawing some questions and you're like, that doesn't sound like what I know the Bible to be saying. Work out my salvation? What in the world does that mean? Well, let me give you the idea that we're going after today to help us understand what this phrase actually means in the passage of Scripture that we're about to read. Here's the idea that I want you to get today. First of all, though, write this down. When personal responsibility and dependency on God's power is embraced... Stability is experienced. Remember what we said about the book of Philippians? It's talking about how we become more mature in our spiritual walk with the Lord. Because stability in the midst of rough waters reveals what? Spiritual maturity. So when I'm embracing my personal responsibility in my walk with the Lord, and at the same time exercising and embracing depend on a built dependency on God's power, I will experience maturity in my walk with the Lord, stability in my life, stability, maturity in all of my relationships, both with God and with others. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give you four choices Four choices that I believe we need to make in order to embrace our responsibility and dependency on God's power in our walk with the Lord. Here's the first one, because we have less time this morning, but wasn't it great? Wasn't it great to hear from our partners? So we sure we did not waste any time this morning. Look at what it says in verse 12. Let's start right in this passage. Look at what it says. Therefore, my beloved, now let's stop right there. You're like, wait a minute, I thought this was gonna be shorter. I'm stopping here for a reason. Whenever you read therefore, when you're reading in your Bible, hopefully on your own, what that tells you is, is you need to read what's above it because what is above it is making a statement of truth and when you see therefore, then it's a conclusion. What am I supposed to do? What's the action? So, Paul in Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, if you were here last week, was all talking about having a mindset of humility. And that mindset of humility leads to action. Remember what we said? Humility is a do thing, it's not a personality, it's not an aura, it's not a gift, it's an action. Based on a mindset. And so Paul is going to continue to help us to understand what does humility look like based on who Jesus Christ is and the example that he gave that's mentioned in verses 5 through 11 of Philippians 2. Now we come to, therefore, what's our response to how Jesus lived as we look to Jesus? What's our response? It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, like you're obeying the Lord and trying to please the Lord and trying to take his word and apply it to your life. Remember, spiritual maturity is not just what we know. It's how we're applying it to what we experience. And as you're obeying, what does Paul say? Not only, just don't do it, not only. As in my presence, but much more in my absence. Now here's the thing. If you're reading this, you can oftentimes gloss right over this and say, well, there's not a lot of significance in that. But here's what I want you to know. There's tremendous significance in that statement. Because here's the first choice that we need to make to embrace our personal responsibility and embrace our dependency on God's power in our walk with the Lord. Here's the first choice. It's a choice. I'm going to choose to be a follower of Jesus rather than a follower of people. What it says, look at it again. It says, I just don't want Paul saying, I just don't want you to obey just because I'm there. Like, I want you to obey. I want this to be your relationship with the Lord, not just when I'm there, but also in my absence. Because let's face it, there was a tremendous bond between Paul and the Philippian church. Paul started it, right? Acts 16 tells us that. Paul started that church. By leading a wealthy woman, Lydia, to the Lord and and how that exploded the church. Paul was in prison because of that church. And haven't you found that when the person that's led you to the Lord, that told you about how much Jesus loves you and what he did for you, he lived a perfect life, he died a perfect death, he rose again for you, that when you place that trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, most likely someone told you that. Maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a parent, maybe it was a boyfriend, maybe it was a girlfriend, maybe it was a spouse, maybe it was a certain pastor on YouTube that you watched a message, whatever it is, and do you notice how there's a loyalty there? Like, that's my guy. He led me to Jesus, and that's awesome. But what I love here is Paul's saying, wait a minute, make sure, make sure that you are a follower of Jesus and not a follower of a person. I think that so often is a struggle of ours, right? Where we can develop allegiance and loyalty to a person or to people to the point that it even would trump our loyalty to Jesus. I mean, Paul even mentioned that, not in Philippians, but in 1 Corinthians, where there's a conflict going on in the church at Corinth, and he says some people are saying... I'm with Paul. Some people are saying I'm with Apollos. Some people are like, no, 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 Paul's our guy. Paul's our guy. Other people are like, no, 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 Apollos is our guy. Wait a minute, I like Paul's preaching way better than Apollos. Like Apollos just bores me. I like Paul. No, are you kidding me? Apollos is the guy, man. He, he won me to Christ. And it's interesting, listen to this. Don't turn there, but just listen to it for time. It says in verse five, Paul says this, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They're servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned us to you. Like we're nothing. But how many times does our loyalty to a person trump our loyalty to God? And I think it's so interesting that in the very first verse of this passage of Scripture on how they're to respond to the humility that Jesus Christ exemplified through him coming to this earth and living and dying and being risen for our sins that he says, listen to me, make sure that you're making a choice to be a follower of Jesus and not a follower of people. Because here's what I found. When I begin to put somebody on a pedestal that only Jesus deserves, I'm always going to reach a point where I'm gonna be disappointed. You know why? Secret, you ready for a secret? I'm a sinner. Here's another secret. So are you. Lori and I have this joke. We've been in ministry 19 years together. We have this joke where we really sometimes just want to, when we meet someone, say, hi, my name's Johnny and this is my wife Lori and we're going to fail you. Just going to let you know right now But what I've found is when I put someone on a pedestal, like I said, and take Jesus off of that pedestal, it's always going to result in conflict. Conflict in my relationships. I'm putting my my spouse on a pedestal that only Jesus deserves. Wait a minute, I follow Jesus, not my spouse. I put my parent on a pedestal and take Jesus off of that pedestal. Wait a minute, I follow Jesus, not my parents. I put a pastor on a pedestal rather than Jesus on a pedestal. Wait a minute, I follow Jesus more than I'm following my pastor. And when I do that and put someone else on a pedestal, it results in conflict in my relationships. Because what's the root of conflict? Unfulfilled expectations. It results in conflict in a church. Wait a minute, that person moved on and that was my guy. So I'm gonna leave the church because my guy's gone. Well, I'm gonna get upset because that person is telling me where I should go and what I should think and his offense has now become my offense or her offense has now become my offense and what it does is it splits churches all the time. Why? Because we're falling into the trap of following people rather than following Jesus. And Paul says, listen, beloved, Just like you've obeyed in my presence, I want you to obey when I'm not here. Because the reality is he was hundreds of miles away and he didn't know if you would ever see those people again. And Paul, out of humility, says, listen to me, you're not following me, you're following Jesus. And I want you to ask yourself this morning, as we're thinking about, wait a minute, my personal responsibility in my walk with the Lord and at the same time God's power in enabling me to do what he's called me to do, when I'm looking at the choices that I need to make in exercising my personal responsibility, I wonder if some of us say, you know what? When I look at my life, I've been following a person rather than Jesus. Here's a second choice. Let's continue reading in verse 12. Now we're coming to this phrase that I mentioned at the beginning of the message, and we're gonna explain it. Paul continues to say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We'll get to verse 13 in a second, but let's pause on verse the end of verse 12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice it does not say, can we, can we just look at God's word, don't look at me, look at God's word and let's make sure we're clear on what this doesn't say. So here's what it doesn't say. doesn't say work for your salvation. doesn't say that, does it? doesn't say work at your salvation, doesn't say or work up your salvation. No, it says work out your salvation. Here's what it's not. It's not speaking of earning my salvation by my human effort or by the good that I can do. It's not saying that. It's not saying, well, if you do more good than you do bad, then God's going to accept you for the good that you've done. No, 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 no. We know in Isaiah it says, all of our deeds are as filthy rags before the Lord. Scripture contradicts that idea. So for sure, work out your salvation doesn't mean I work for my salvation. Let me give you another passage of Scripture that you know well Ephesians 2 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. See, here's what you need to understand that when you see a passage of Scripture that maybe you're like, what does that mean? What's helpful is, and the reason why we walk through books in this church and preach expositionally is because Scripture interprets Scripture. So when I look at work out your salvation, I can't say it means work for my salvation because that would contradict everything Paul already wrote in chapter 1. So what does it mean? Well, work out has this interesting idea. It literally means constant energy and effort to finish a task it's written in such a way that it has the idea this isn't a one-time decision. This is keep working out. Remember we mentioned the physical illustrations? Guess what? I can diet and exercise for a month and see changes, and then the next month I can stuff my face with pizza every day, and guess what? It's not gonna have the same result, right? Because I have to do what? I have to keep working out. That's how I grow physically, but that's also how I grow spiritually. So it's in this tense that has the idea of keep working out, but then it tells me how to do that. It says, with fear and with trembling. Now, fear is an interesting word. It literally can mean two things. It can mean fright or terror, but I don't think it means that. It's not like You know, we see in 2 Timothy 1, God's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. So it's not like I walk in here every Sunday like this, waiting for the lightning bolt to come and to strike me down because I failed in some way last week, even though I confessed it. Lord, I'm living with fear. No, 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 that's not the idea. It has the idea, and most of you probably would draw this conclusion. It has the idea of reverence. There's a healthy reverence. I think we've lost that in our church today. That there's a healthy reverence for who my God is. He's not some granddad up in heaven with some long beard and he looks at your life and you're living like the world and he's like, oh, that's okay, sonny. You're still part of the family. No, no, there's a reverence. There's a respect That my God is the creator of the universe and he could wipe me out in one second, but out of his love and out of his grace, he called me as one of his children through Jesus Christ. Lord, I praise you for that, but I respect that. That's the idea of fear. Proverbs 1, 7 uses the Hebrew equivalent. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Don't be foolish. Be fearful, worshipful, submission, reverence. And then there's that word tremble, which has the idea of shaking. See, here's the idea. There's a reverence towards God. There's a right view of who God is. But in having a right view of who God is, in turn, I'll also have a right view of myself. See, I'm to work out my salvation. Here's the idea. I work out my salvation in such a way that I understand, God, if it's not for your power, working in and through me. God, I'm doomed to do anything for you that's of any good and giving you any glory. I can't do it on my own. It's having this idea. It's not saying this. I could never do that. Like when you hear about someone who falls into sin and has an affair on their wife or husband. And how many times, though we would never say it out loud, we look at that and, and to be honest, we could even have a heart of judgment and we would look at that and say, well, I could never do that. And look at that addiction that happened and is now revealed in that person. But I could never do that. Look at how that person just committed this or committed that, I can't believe it. Like, what were they thinking? But I could never do that. Listen to me. Whenever you start saying to yourself, I could never do that, hear me on this, that's never from the spirit, that's of Satan. See, the proper response to that is, by God's grace, Lord, I don't want to do that. See, here's the second choice. Almost forgot to give it. Here's the second choice choose to be alert rather than absurd about my weaknesses. We gotta be alert. Because here's what I've found. Whenever someone says I could never do that, they will always reach a point where they will ask this question, how did I do that? How many people I've had to sit with and they're like, how did I, how could I have done this? How did I get here? It's because they developed an attitude of pride to no longer be alert about their weakness of their flesh. And they started to believe that the things in God's word no longer applied to them. What does 1 Peter 5:8 say? Be sober-minded, be alert. "...because your enemy, the devil, walks around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour." In college, some of you know this. I've, I've, I've given stories, some of, of, of this. In college, I used to work at SeaWorld. I grew up in Orlando, Florida. And so in college, I would come home for the summers, and I would work at SeaWorld. And I work on the landscaping department that we called the horticultural department to make it sound a lot fancier. But we would literally work in the park, and you'd divide the park up into sections, and your crew would have a certain section of the park. And I remember one summer, we had this certain section that had these really pretty little lagoons with, with uh, trees that draped over the lagoons, and we had shrubbery around there, and you had flamingos there, and some other birds that didn't fly. Very beautiful, and I remember one week at the beginning of the week, we had to go in there and we had to trim back some bushes and some things had become overgrown. And so we would go in there and, you know, you're looking for things. You start at six in the morning, you get off at 2.30 in the afternoon, pretty good hours, but the 6 a.m. is not great. And so you get there and you're trying to do things to wake yourself up and to kind of kill the monotony of what you're doing. And I remember there was all these birds there, right? And so, you know, they can't fly and they're just there, just kind of hanging out, standing there doing absolutely nothing. And so you're there and you're, we're trimming, we're trimming hedges, and every once in a while what we do is we just want to run. Sorry, camera guys. Run and like scare the birds away and get a laugh when nobody else, because we would do this before the park opened at 10 o'clock, okay? We weren't doing this while people were there. And just hoping that the animal people who hug them and pet them and worship them every day didn't see us. And so we would do that. And I remember that week we were messing around doing that in this lagoon area. But the next day, we went to a different area of the section of the park that we were responsible for. And this section had this pit of alligators. I've got a picture on the screen of this. It uh, had a pit pit of these alligators. And normally what we would do is we had to go and water the potted plants. And, and so there were some potted plants inside of this pit. You can't see a lot of the greenery that's there, but we would, we would water those plants, but we would never get inside of the pit because who would do that? That would be insanity. Problem is, is that day there was shrubbery in there and vegetation. And I just assumed every time I walked by that thing that they just let that stuff grow wild because who in the world would ever get in a pit of alligators? Until the supervisor of our crew said, today we're getting in the pit of alligators." And I thought he was joking. I thought, ha ha, pulling, pulling a joke on the rookie who's new on your crew. But he's like, no, 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 seriously, we're getting in there. I was like, how are we getting in there? Because you can see from the, from the picture, these are not your little six-foot cute alligators you see in the wild on the boat in an Everglades in Florida. These are 12, foot 14-foot alligators that they just feed steroids to, I think, to get as big as possible so that you'll look and just like, be amazed at the alligators that they have, but we were going in there. So I remember going in there, and I'm like, how is this going to work? And so they brought this scrawny little guy, I remember, this scrawny little kid. And he had this pole with this little rope thing on there. And so somehow, and they like to gather all together. He was standing there with this pole like this. So I'm climbing the fence, (laughs) going in, I'm reliving it as I'm telling it, climbing into this fence. And I remember trimming a hedge, and never taking the uh, my eyes off the alligator. That hedge was probably like this. I don't even remember. But literally, and then when it was time to clean up the trimmings, I was literally like this. Like, thinking to myself that somehow if I was watching it, I could somehow outrun it. I don't know why I was thinking that. And they were literally as close to that wall to where I am. And I'm a person who speaks in hyperbole, but not this time. And I remember thinking to myself, a totally different idea than me chasing some silly flamingos, because that could kill me quickly, hopefully quickly. <laughs> now, here's why I tell that story, because when I was in that pit with the alligators, let me tell you something, man. I was alert. I was alert. I knew my weaknesses, and I knew that was alligator strength. And some of us, should I say all of us in this room this morning, need to be more alert rather than absurd about our weaknesses. Because just like that alligator could come at me quickly and take my life in an instant, I could do nothing. When I don't rely on God's power, my flesh can do the same thing. And Satan's just whispering in my ear, that can never happen to you. You can never lose your ministry and fall into some type of sin it can never happen to you, speaking of myself can never happen to you in the scenarios that I gave already. No, 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 no. When I start saying that will never happen to me, it will lead me down a path that will cause me to ask, how did this happen to me? And what Paul makes mention of, he says, no, 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 we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. There's a reverence to who God is, but there's also an understanding of my weakness in and of my sinful nature. But aren't you glad the verse doesn't stop there? Because verse 17, verse 13 says, Hey, listen, let's remind ourselves there's a personal responsibility in my walk with the Lord. But listen to me, there's also a power of God involved in my walk with the Lord. Because what does he say in verse 13? For it is God who works in you. God wants to do a work in you, believe it. God wants to do something in you that cannot be explained in human terms but can only be explained in supernatural terms so that God can get the glory in and through your life. It's God who works in you. But the only way that I claim that power and apply it in my life is by me exercising my personal responsibility and saying, Lord, there's choices that I need to make. There's, it's not enough to sit on a bunker full of ammunition and guns all around me and be in a war and expect me to win. No, 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 I need to pick up the gun and use it. I need to be in your word. I need to be engaged in prayer. I need to be submitting to you every day. I need to be alert about my own weaknesses because when I'm alert about my own weaknesses, I am responsive to the power that you have given me through the Holy Spirit because I understand who you are and what you can accomplish in and through my life. But I also understand the pitfall of what I get into when I think that I can do it on my own because he says it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's not talking about God's will and work. That's talking about your desire, your will to do God's work. That what grows in you as you make the choice, no, I'm gonna follow Jesus, not a person. God, I'm gonna be alert about my weaknesses and I'm gonna seek you every day and submit to you every day and be in your word and put on the armor of of salvation and the armor of God that's been given to me, Ephesians chapter six. And God, I'm gonna be girded up every day for battle because I know that when I am, I get to experience your power. And as I do that every day, remember, keep working out. As I do that every day, I begin to see my will and your will start to become one where my will to do what I want to do shrinks and my desire to do what you want to do grows. That's Psalm 37, four. Delight yourself in the law of the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. That's not a wish list verse. It's when I'm delighting myself in my relationship with the Lord, all of a sudden my desires start to change. Here's the third choice and it's found in verses 14 and 15. Look at what it says. Do all things. Do you love these 100% statements by Paul? Paul. He says another one in verse 3, right, in Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Here he says, do all things without what? Without grumbling or, com- or disputing. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shines as light in the world. See, he says in the previous verse, in verse 12 and 13, work out your salvation because it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And now he's going to show us the outward signs of God working in you. It means that you're going to be free from grumbling and disputing. See, here's the third choice that I need to make every day, the choice to celebrate rather than be cynical in all circumstances. See, grumbling has the idea; it literally has this idea of guttural, muttering sounds underneath your breath. You ever experienced that? Something's going on. And you're like, mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, "That's grumbling." Disputing has the actual idea of literally arguing, questioning, doubting what is true. I want you to hear this. If you haven't written anything down, and I hope that's not you, but if you have, write this down, this phrase right here. The choice to celebrate is a discipline of the heart. Let me stop right there. You've heard me say this if you call this place your own. Celebration is a discipline. Our minds are always gonna wander to what hasn't been done where we've been let down, what we wanted to do that hasn't happened, and that's why celebration is a discipline, that I have to constantly say, wait a minute, I'm going to stop and I'm going to remind myself of the goodness of God. I'm going to remind myself what he actually is doing. I'm going to look at it, and if God took my spouse, and I'm going to look and I'm going to say, God, I I can't believe that, that my spouse, despite what we prayed, died of whatever disease it is, but God, I'm gonna praise you because I have family around me at this time and I have a community of believers around me at this time and yes, my mind wants to go to that and yes, it's good to grieve and all of those things but God, in the midst of the grief, I'm gonna choose to praise. I'm gonna choose to celebrate. There are always things in your life that you can identify as things to praise God about as a follower of Jesus Christ but it's a discipline and it's a discipline of the heart because true praise flows from the heart. I'm so glad Gray encouraged us to remind ourselves what we're doing when we gather in this place. Because I wonder if there was a video camera and it literally was panning the audience when we gather together and we sing and there was no sound whatsoever, just just video. If people would be able to identify, man, those people are excited about something. Those people are praising about something. Somebody must have won or somebody must have done something. But I wonder how many of us are in this room and it takes someone to actually beg you to worship because you come in here and honestly, if there was just a camera panning and nobody heard any of the audio, they would think they were at a funeral. They would think someone had just died. They would think that you couldn't have cared less. Why is that? Because it comes from the heart. And if the only time we clap, if the only time we praise, if the only time we sing is because a leader up here is begging you to do so, it's not coming from the heart. See, celebration is a discipline of the heart. But get, me, get this, cynicism, cynicism, and the choice to be so is a result of the hurt of the heart. See, the choice to celebrate is a discipline of the heart. But the choice to be cynical is a result of the hurt of the heart. See, here's what I've found in my own life. It's easy for me to drift into cynicism about everything. It's easy for me to drift into cynicism about the church. It's easy for me to drift into cynicism about what God can do. It's easy for me to drift into cynicism. Yeah, my wife made that decision already, but she's going she's to she's go back on it she's done it before, he's done it before, my kids have done it before. Why, because that's a result of hurt. Because you haven't resolved that God has done something that's different than what you wanted or maybe you thought that if you prayed it just once that God would automatically just do it and so you're struggling with submitting, you're hurt. You opened up to someone in life group and, and shared something or shared something with a friend that you thought was a confidant and they betrayed your trust so you're hurt so you're now you're cynical to ever having close relationships again. Why? Because it's a result of the hurt of the heart. And you're holding on to those hurts rather than them taking them to the God who can heal them. And Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And here's the thing. Cynicism can easily become a habit that you're not even aware of. You're Not even aware of. Here's what I'd encourage you to do, and here's what I'd encourage you to know. Everybody else is aware of it. Like maybe some of us need to leave and we need to have a conversation with our spouse and say, hey, am I really, is that cynical? Yes. So, what's going on in my heart that's causing me to do so? Because Paul says you need to understand the seriousness of this because this affects how you live your life. He says, Do this so that you'll be blameless, so that you'll actually be a light to people who have yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the enemy is hijacking your purpose in life by causing you to be cynical to the things that you ought to celebrate. Here's the last choice. It's found in verses 16 through 18. It says, Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even as I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. See, Paul doesn't know that he's not going to have his life taken from him. But he says I am glad and I rejoice with you all likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me here's the last choice choose to be submissive rather than stubborn to the word of God Paul uses this phrase hold fast holding fast same the same idea keep working out Same idea, keep holding fast. It's the idea of almost holding on to a rope and letting it guide you to where you need to go. See, some of us are in a pit right now because we've been following people. Some of us are in a pit right now because we've been absurd about our weaknesses. Some of us are in a pit right now because we've been cynical in our faith in every circumstance, and what the Lord is saying, hold fast, hold fast to what? The word of life, the thing that actually brings life. And you're in that pit and the rope's been dropped and God's saying, hold fast to this. It's what's going to bring life. But in order for you to hold fast to the word of life, you have to let go to the things that are dragging you down and bringing death to your soul. See, many of us in this room are followers of Jesus Christ. And we are that because someone loved us enough, as I said earlier, to tell us that message. And in one way, they've entrusted to us a gift that was entrusted to them. See, every one of us who placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ have a legacy to live. See, that's Paul's point. He's saying, live out your faith, hold fast to the word of life. And by doing so, I can rejoice in what God is doing you. And it's a reminder and an encouragement to me that my life was worth something. What are you doing with the legacy that God's entrusted to you? Because what God's word says this morning is to let go of whatever those things are that have been bringing you down, causing you not to work out your salvation, not to embrace God's power working in and through you, and hold fast to the thing that brings life, which is his word, and the application of it in my life, and submitting to it rather than be stubborn. I know we've gone a little over this morning, but I want every head bowed and every eye closed because I believe that this is what God wants us to do. We talked a lot about obedience, and one of the things that one of the speakers said at the conference that I was at this week stuck with me. He said, obedience is the greatest sign of reverence. So I just want you to examine your heart right now. What choices are you making? Praise God, we don't work for our salvation or we'd all be doomed. But there's a responsibility to work it out. And God hasn't left us with that responsibility on our own. He's given us the power through the Holy Spirit to do his will and his work. But it it, it takes choices every day. And so, if you need to confess sin, you confess sin. If you need to remind yourself of the goodness of God in the midst of your painful circumstances, then you do that right now. But let's do business with God in these few moments.